Welcome to the Tech Meme Right Home for Friday, July 2nd, 2021. I'm Brian McCullough. Today, Robinhood files for its long-awaited IPO. The Chinese government takes the shine off of Didi's recent IPO. More new features from Twitter. Is Apple the first to take advantage of three nanometer chips? And of course, the weekend long-read suggestions. Here's what you missed today in the world of tech. Well, it's the end of an era, in a way. This generation of tech startups to rise to prominence during the 2010s. The last big one to go out the door is going out the door. Robinhood has filed for its long-awaited IPO. And that, of course, brought us a bunch of news, beginning with how good a business Robinhood actually has. To be honest, it's a bit mixed, quoting Axios. The Silicon Valley company reports a $1.44 billion net loss on $522 million in revenue for the first three months of 2021, but the entire loss was tied to a fair market value adjustment to the convertible note financing, the convertible note that Robinhood was forced to take out early in the pandemic. Robinhood reported a $52 million net loss on $128 million in revenue for Q1 of 2020 and a $7.5 million profit on $959 million in revenue, end quote. Actually, though, under those red and black numbers, there's a story of serious growth here. Quoting TechCrunch, The fintech unicorn's revenue grew from $277.5 million in 2019 to $958.8 million in 2020, which works out to around growth of 245%. Robinhood expanded even more quickly in the first quarter of 2021, scaling from year-ago revenue of $127.6 million to $522.2 million, a gain of around 309%. Those are numbers that we frankly do not often see among companies going going public. 300% growth is a pre-Series A metric, usually. Two more notes on the company's financial health. First, adjusted profits. While the first quarter of this year looks awful for Robinhood in gap terms, using a more startup-friendly profitability lens helps make a stronger case. In adjusted EBITDA terms, Robinhood's 2002 profits swelled to $154.6 million, and in the first quarter of this year, it posted $114.8 million in non-GAAP profits. That's probably the largest gap from GAAP to adjusted profitability we've ever seen. We can quickly see that Robinhood's options income still reigns supreme in terms of contribution to revenue during the first quarter of 2021, albeit at a loss of some luster to equities generated top line. Why? Well, GameStop, we reckon, and other stocks that likely helped Robinhood post record results in the period for that line item. But the key growth story for the company in the period is its crypto results, which shot from dismissible to material over the last 12 months. How did that happen? Robinhood has an answer from the risk factors section of the filing, quote, A substantial portion of the recent growth in our net revenue earned from cryptocurrency transactions is attributable to transactions in Dogecoin. If demand for transactions in Dogecoin declines and is not replaced by new demand for other cryptocurrencies available for trading on our platform, our business, financial condition, and results of operations could be adversely affected, end quote. Yep, Dogecoin. You love to see it, end quote. To which I would say, yes, like everybody else, crypto trading has been this manna from heaven for Robinhood. And thus, like with Coinbase, one has to wonder what happens if crypto goes cold, or specifically for Robinhood, I guess, if Doge goes cold. Robinhood had 18 million funded accounts in March, up from 12.5 million in 2020. 
Assets under management were around $80 billion, up from $19.2 billion year over year, and they had monthly active users of $17.7 million. Robinhood also had to reveal that various regulators are still investigating its trading restrictions relating to the GameStop fiasco, and that its CEO's phone was seized by U.S. attorneys in relation to some of these investigations. But at the same time, Robinhood says it is setting aside up to 35% of shares at IPO for retail investors, i.e., they want their users to be able to buy their stock at the IPO. Robinhood does have an IPO access feature, so maybe this is that, a bit of community building. I think, though, this take by Alex Willem in TechCrunch was also interesting. Quote, You can view this in one of two ways. On one hand, perhaps Robinhood expects its users will be more likely to hold on to its shares, perhaps helping it manage first-day trading swings. On the other, perhaps Robinhood wants to ensure that it can get a bunch of shares trading hands among a less savvy investing group than IPOs tend to sell stock to. Which argument you put more stock in depends on your view of the company, we reckon, end quote. It's hard to believe that this is coincidental, but on Wednesday, Chinese tech unicorn Didi held its IPO on the New York Stock Exchange. It closed up nearly 16% in trading on Thursday. And then this morning, the Chinese government announced a cybersecurity review of Didi, during which period it won't be able to register any new users. And thus, Didi's shares fell more than 10% in pre-market trading this morning. Signal sent and received, I suppose, quoting CNBC. Didi said in a statement it would, quote, fully cooperate during the review, quote, we plan to conduct comprehensive examination of cybersecurity risks and continuously improve on our cybersecurity systems and technology capacities, a spokesperson told CNBC in an email. China's announcement also reflects a broader trend of the country's regulatory crackdown on technology companies based there that were once loosely regulated. In June, Reuters reported that Chinese regulators were probing DD for antitrust violations. Beijing is also reportedly looking into the company's pricing mechanisms. DD had warned in its IPO prospectus that it met with regulators earlier this year along with several other Chinese internet companies. The ride-hailing company said it might be subject to penalties as regulatory bodies might not be satisfied with the inspection results, end quote. More new features from Twitter, or at least new features being tested, including a way to tweet only to a group of trusted friends, the ability to tweet under different personas, and more, quoting TechCrunch. The first of the new ideas builds on work that began last year with the release of a feature that allows an original poster to choose who's allowed to reply to their tweet. Today, users can choose to limit replies to only people mentioned in the tweet, only people they follow, or they can leave it defaulted to everyone. But even though this allows users to limit who can respond, everyone can see the tweet itself and they can like, retweet, or quote tweet the post. With the proposed Trusted Friends feature, users could tweet to a group of their own choosing. This could be a way to use Twitter with real-life friends or some other small network of people you know more personally. Perhaps you could post a tweet that only your New York friends could see when you wanted to let them know you were in town. Or maybe you could post only to those who share your love of a 
particular TV show, sporting event, or hobby. Another new feature under consideration is reply language prompts. This feature would allow Twitter users to choose phrases they don't want to see in their replies when someone is writing back to the original poster. These words and phrases would be highlighted, and a prompt would explain why the original poster doesn't want to see that sort of language. For instance, users could configure prompts to appear if someone is using profanity in their reply. The third and perhaps most complicated feature is something Twitter is calling facets. This is an early idea about tweeting from different personas from one account. The feature would make sense for those who often tweet about different aspects of their lives, including their work life, their side hustles, their personal life or family, their passions, and more. Unlike trusted friends, which would let you restrict some tweets to a more personal network, facets would give other users the ability to choose whether they wanted to follow all your tweets or only those about the facet that they're interested in. This way, you could follow someone's tweets about tech, but ignore their stream of reactions they post when watching their favorite team play, or you could follow your friend's personal tweets but ignore their work-related content, and so on. This is an interesting idea, as Twitter users have always worried about alienating some of their followers by posting off-topic, so to speak, but this also puts the problem of determining what tweets to show which users on the end user themselves. Users may be better served by the algorithmic timeline that understands which content they engage with and which they tend to ignore." End quote. Whenever I need to do financial research for this show, for instance, during tech earnings season when I have to analyze how various companies' stocks have been performing, I only ever turn to our sponsor today, Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They are the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insights to look at your wealth in its entirety. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. When you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID and another line where a machine scans your bag. The same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation where they check user identity, but user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop that has its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months. Or worse, that laptop might belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Okta-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. 
Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it all works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride collide.com slash ride. Sources are telling Nikkei Asia that Apple and Intel are the first to rush to adopt TSMC's three nanometer chips. In Apple's case, they're probably going to be used for new iPads. And in Intel's case, in CPUs for Intel-powered notebooks and data centers. Quote, Apple and Intel are testing their chip designs with TSMC's 3-nanometer production technology, according to several sources briefed on the matter, with commercial output of such chips expected to start in the second half of next year. According to TSMC, 3-nanometer technology can increase computing performance by 10-15%, to compared with 5-nanometers, while reducing power consumption by 25-30%. to Apple's iPad will likely be the first devices powered by processors made using 3-nanometer technology, sources said. The next generation of iPhones, which are are to roll out next year are expected to make use of the intermediate 4 nanometer tech for scheduling reasons. Intel, America's biggest chipmaker, is working with TSMC on at least two 3 nanometer projects to design central processing units for notebooks and data center servers in an attempt to regain market share it lost to advanced micro devices and Nvidia over the past few years. Mass production of these chips is expected to begin by the end of 2022 at the earliest. Currently, the chip volume plan for Intel is more than that for Apple's iPad using the 3 nanometer process, one of the sources said. For Intel, which both designs and manufactures chips, the collaboration with TSMC is aimed at tidying the company over until it can get its own in-house production technology on track. The company has delayed the introduction of its own 7-nanometer production technology to around 2023, well behind Asian rivals TSMC and Samsung. The release of Intel's latest Xeon processors, powered by the company's 10-nanometer technology, has also been delayed from the end of this year to the second quarter of next year, the company said this week." End quote. time for the Weekend Long Read Suggestions. If you know the space, then you know Federico Vitici always publishes deep dives anytime there's new iOS or iPad OS releases, and this time it's no different. But this is his initial review, not the full review, which will come in a few months. But I'm going to give that to you in case you want to know every little thing that is different or new coming to these OSs. Let me quote from his piece. Let me cut to the chase. I don't think iOS and iPadOS 15 are massive updates like iOS and iPadOS 13 or 14 were. There are dozens of interesting new features in both updates, but none of them feels obvious to demonstrate to average users like dark mode and iPad multi-window in iOS and iPadOS 13 or home screen widgets in last year's iOS 14. And for the most part, I think that's fine. The wheel doesn't have to be reinvented every year, and the pandemic happened for everyone, including Apple engineers. In many ways, iOS and iPadOS 15 remind me of iOS 10 and 12. They're updates that build on the foundation set by their predecessors, bringing welcome consumer additions that, while not earth-shattering, contribute to making iOS more mature, intelligent, and deeply integrated with Apple's ecosystem." End quote. Next, Andy Jassy takes over as Amazon CEO on Monday, and the Wall Street Journal has a timely profile. Quote, Mr. Jassy, 53 years old, is an Amazon lifer who learned the ropes at Mr. Bezos' side. He shares some traits with his mentor and in other ways is a different type of leader. People who've worked closely with Mr. Jassy over the years describe him as soft-spoken and approachable in a way that some say Mr. Bezos isn't. An avid sports and music fan, Mr. Jassy likes to wear jeans to the office and can occasionally be spotted in restaurants around Amazon's Seattle campus. 
Though some former employees say Mr. Jesse is more even-keeled with employees than Mr. Bezos, who has been known to explode in meetings if an executive seems ill-prepared, they also say he is at least as intense and competitive. And while Mr. Bezos for the past several years has largely governed with a hands-off approach, as the Wall Street Journal reported in February, Mr. Jesse is known for digging into the minutia of his division, Amazon Web Services, sometimes to a degree that baffled his underlings, according to former employees. He did everything from pitching potential customers and guiding technical changes to choosing the music at company events and editing press releases. It was more difficult to reserve a spot on Mr. Jassy's calendar than it was with any other top executive reporting to Mr. Bezos, according to former senior Amazon executives. He's just got a phenomenal focus on details said James Hamilton, an Amazon vice president who has worked with Mr. Jesse for more than a dozen years. That relentless focus on detail is truly unique, end quote. Next, Bloomberg Businessweek has an amazing story about how a junior Microsoft engineer allegedly figured out an unbelievable scam involving $10 million worth of Xbox gift cards, quote, Kvashuk found a bug that would change his life, a flaw so stupidly obvious that he couldn't bring himself to report it to his managers. He noticed that whenever he tested purchases of gift cards, the Microsoft store dispensed real 5 by 5 codes. It dawned on him he could generate virtually unlimited codes all for free. A former senior engineer at Kvashuk's team, who, like other sources in the story, spoke on the condition of anonymity to avoid being publicly associated with the wrongdoing that followed, says this was the Halo Age equivalent of of a frontier bank leaving its vault unlocked. Sooner or later, someone's going to try to get away with taking $20, the ex-Microsoft employee says. When they don't get caught, they figure, all I need is six guys to empty out the safe one night when no other employees are around, end quote. Kvashik started small, generating Xbox cards in increments of $10 to $100, but his haul quickly escalated. By the time federal agents caught up with him almost two years later, he had stolen more than 152,000 Xbox gift cards worth $10.1 million and was living off the proceeds in a seven-figure lakefront home with plans to buy a ski chalet, yacht, and seaplane. This past November, a judge sentenced him to nine years in prison, end quote. The LA Times has the interesting story of how psychics and tarot card readers and the like are making bank in this age of TikTok and Cameo and Clubhouse and coronavirus, I guess, quote, Like a lot of the mediums she knows, McIntyre did the bulk of her consultations in person before COVID-19 lockdowns swept the world in 2020. But now, with limited ability to host clients in her home, she's expanded her Facebook following 27-fold, taken a class on how to use Instagram more effectively, ramped up her use of Zoom, and even briefly experimented with TikTok, much to her kids' bemusement. I went, oh, just give it a go. I'll try and do a bit more online work because I have time, she said in an interview. That's also how she wound up pulling tarot cards on Cameo, an app where people buy and sell short personalized video messages. The platform is mostly known as a place for C-list celebrities to send their fans celebrity shout-outs. For $200, a tertiary actor from The Office will congratulate your child on their Sweet 16. But for McIntyre, it's become another way to get paid for her talent. Cameo does take a 25% cut of booking fees for itself. Quote, 98% of my business is now online when before it was the other way around, McIntyre said, end quote. And finally, this isn't tech, I suppose, or is it? Something, something, Cyberdyne Systems, Skynet becomes self-aware. Check out the oral history from the making of Terminator 2 from The Ringer, if you want to live.
Important programming notes for you. First of all, Ride Home Plus subscribers, you've got an interesting Rays episode coming to you this weekend, including a profile of the startup being called the Shopify of mobile apps. But also, for everybody, the 4th of July falls on Sunday this year, so the official observation, as they say, is on Monday. And so I will be taking Monday off. No show on Monday, though I will once again share our most recent Twitter space where we went deep on what happened or what didn't happen with that Facebook antitrust case that got thrown out this week. We go deep on big tech regulation, so enjoy that. Enjoy all the recent space casts if you're jonesing for tech news while waiting for me to return on Tuesday. Search your podcast app for space casts. Enjoy your long weekend, everyone. That has one. Talk to you next week from Northern Michigan.